to expound it, to apply it, Lord, so that our lives might be transformed. We ask you to bless Matt as he serves us today. Lord, give us attentive hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me here today to come and speak. I think uh, this is our second time. We came with Tom last year, um, and uh, it's really great to be here with you. Um, I'm here with my wife, Jenny, and uh, we've been married for nearly 10 years now. So, yeah, so 10 years next month. So uh, it's uh, been good. And uh, just to tell you a little about us, we met in Eastbourne. We went to the New Frontiers Church in Eastbourne, King's Church there, got married there, and then we moved to Portsmouth to be part of the church plant there and uh, spent about six or seven years in Portsmouth. Um, We started a student work in the church and were part of the leadership there. Um, And then we felt God moving us on again. And uh, after uh, about a year and a half, we moved to Canterbury Um, to be part of the church there and I'm now working for New Frontiers but based in Canterbury uh, organizing Mobilize which um, is the kind of student part of the Together on a Mission conference and uh, supporting and kind of encouraging student workers in our churches in the UK. So we have a student worker weekend which we do every January, February time And during the year, I'm just trying to keep in touch with as many as I can. We have nearly 100 churches with student works um, across the UK. So um, God's doing a great thing with students. Um, So that's kind of a little bit about me. Um, As most of you will know, we're in the middle of a series of Matthew. If you're new here, then uh, I'll try and catch you up very quickly. We're looking at Matthew 9 today, but... So far through the Gospel of Matthew, we've had Jesus' birth being described, his early years, then his baptism in water, and then his baptism in the Spirit. He starts his ministry, and he starts to call his first disciples. And then we have this great bit of teaching, don't we, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, this incredible kind of teaching that he brings to us of how Uh, the kingdom of God is, how the Christian life should be, this incredible challenge to us in the Sermon of the Mount. And then we get to chapters 8 and 9. And this is where Jesus really starts to turn up the volume, I believe, on what the kingdom of God is, because it's here that we see God coming in power. It's in these two chapters that the kingdom of God is demonstrated through power, that we are not left in any doubt here over who is king of this kingdom. Because Jesus is king of this kingdom, and he is bringing the power of God throughout these chapters. We see that he has authority over sickness. And as I was studying this, I didn't realize this, but actually Judaism at that time told people that if you were sick long term, then that was unforgiveness, that was God's unforgiveness of you, that you were remaining under the judgment of God. And so they were seen as outcasts. So Jesus, even at the beginning of chapter 9, saying first to this crippled man that he was forgiven was of more significance than saying that he was healed. And that's where the blasphemy came. That was what was so astounding. So he has authority over sickness, and especially as that is seen as unforgiveness by God. He has authority over nature in these two chapters. He calms a storm. He has authority over the spiritual world. He's 
casting out demons. He can tell demons to go in his name. He has authority even over death, as we saw on the video. Jairus comes to Jesus. He leaves a funeral. This is the faith of a man. This is great faith, isn't it? Your daughter has died, and he travels. We don't know how far, but I would say probably a distance to find this man and say, you, at your words, could heal, well, not even heal, bring back to life my daughter. You can bring my daughter back to life. He has authority over death. And interestingly as well, he has authority to call people. He calls his disciples, and in the video we see him calling Matthew. And all he says to him is, follow me. And that was enough for Matthew to get up and to follow him. And I want to concentrate on these verses around Matthew from verse 9 to 13 of chapter 9. I just want to read them again so we can get them into our minds. This is where we're going to be based. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In fact, the the Greek emphasis on that that question is actually, why does your teacher continually eat with tax collectors? And This is something they've seen him doing over and over again. Why Why does your teacher continually eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, that's Jesus, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And I want to look not at the actual calling of Matthew and the party that he he throws, as uh, you might have thought, but actually this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees. This is what I really felt God kind of moving me towards this morning. And uh, in, in the ESV study Bible, it gives us, and helpfully for me, an excellent summary of what the different types of versions of Judaism were about in Jesus' time. We had the Sadducees, who were, uh, had control of the temple at the time. They were the ruling kind of group at that point. They had control of the temple and the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. But they were wealthy families. They were very unpopular with the people. And uh, they, were un- they were cruel and unfriendly. So they didn't really get much influence over the people. They had influence over the temple, but that was kind of it. And then we had their rivals, which were the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees weren't helped that much in their plan to to rule over the temple because they were split into three groups um, behind leaders, and people would follow different versions of it. But their control was in the synagogues. So out and about across uh, Palestine, as it was then, they had the control in the synagogues. They felt they had uh, interpreted the scriptures um, often in a quite a strict way. And when they heard about Jesus preaching, they sent this kind of delegation to try and find out what was happening. What, who was this man who was teaching with such authority, such a new thing in the synagogues and in the towns? 
And the Pharisees, importantly, they were especially scrupulous to maintain a righteous position before God. They wanted to always maintain this righteous position. They believed that resurrection from the dead was a reward for living a righteous life. And so they went over and above to do this. They were constantly striving to keep the law. But they wanted to keep the law on the outside. It was an external. They had a view of the law that was to do with what people could see. And so as long as they kept the law in terms of what people could see, it didn't matter what they thought or what their heart was or what their motive was. But Jesus was more concerned with the heart of the Pharisee. For all their external righteousness, they'd actually become hard-hearted and prideful. So Jesus hits them really hard here by saying it's not what other people see in you, it's what is in the heart. That's what comes from within us that is important. He wants us to love and submit and serve him from the heart. Not out of ritual or duty or out of a a way of thinking that God owes us something. Because we've been good, therefore I deserve to live well. Or because I've been good, therefore I deserve to be healthy. Jesus wants us to be serving him from the heart. He especially raises the bar in this passage on how we treat other people who we see in sin. The Pharisees see people in sin. He saw the tax collectors and sinners, and they were disgusted by it. And actually, if we depend on our own works, if we depend on our own goodness, then we easily see the other sin in other people, and then a pride can start to rise up in us. We can think, oh, they've only got themselves to blame to be in that position. They, they need to sort themselves out. Yet Jesus is calling us to minister out of love and compassion and mercy, he says, just as we've been shown. I love it how Jesus uses the analogy here of a doctor and sickness, that we need a doctor. When we're sick, we tend to know about it, don't you? I, I, I don't know about you, but when I'm sick, I really know about it, and I tell you, Jen very much knows about it. I like to let everybody know I'm sick. I'm posting it all on Facebook and Twitter. You know, everybody knows I'm sick. You know, whether it's, you know, I've just got a cold or a temperature or the dreaded man flu, then it's like, it is, you know, the world is not an eye. Everything's coming down with it. When I was six, um, I got a few bumps and ra- a rash. And I went and showed my mum and I said, Look, I've got, this is a bit odd. She was like, oh, it was in the middle of the summer. She's like, it's just a heat rash. It's nothing. So I was like, okay. Wake up the next morning. I'm covered from head to toe. I have chicken pox. It's not a heat rash. You would know it. It's everywhere, all over my face. Everybody would know. You, you knew that I had a sickness. And most of the time, we know when we're sick. And also, we know when we're sinning, don't we? We know it when we've done something against God or against someone else and that we've sinned. But of all the Many times that our bodies do tell us when we're sick. It can be surprising how bad our bodies can be at telling us when something really important is wrong with us. So, for example, um, quite a few years ago now, probably about 10 years ago, my mum got cancer, but she didn't know it. And there was a routine test that actually brought it out. And she was, went in for an operation to have it removed. And I can remember sitting with her, and she was telling me, she was saying it feels really odd because I don't feel any different. I don't feel different from six months ago, six years ago. I feel fine. I feel healthy. But there's something in me, something hidden that's actually trying to kill me. 
And this is what Jesus was trying to say with the Pharisees. You see, there was something in them that was killing them, but they couldn't see it. They were completely blind to it. And I really felt prompted by this. I really felt prompted by this all myself because, you know, I can feel well. In fact, the Pharisees thought they were at the peak of spiritual health. They thought they were, there was none more godly than them, none more righteous than them. They were striving for what they felt God was calling them to. And yet Jesus did some skillful diagnosis and surgery on them to reveal the reality of that religious devotion. Their eagerness to please God was a good motive, which, you know, I have. I want to please God. In fact, a motive that we should all have, isn't it? But actually it led them to obsession, to a self-reliance on their own good works, and then to hardened hearts. Then it went on to harsh words. And it's a subtle change that actually rolled on and on. And what I became aware of was that as I was looking at this, is that how easy it is for me to feel actually self-righteous towards the Pharisees. I thought, man, I would never be like that. I would never reject people like that. But we see it with eyes having seen the whole story, don't we? And not in that point. And as I allowed Jesus to kind of open me up, I realized how easy it is for me to fall over that line for passion for God into actually wanting to make rules about things, wanting to have everything really neat and tidy. I began to see little things tucked away in my heart that no one would really see, no one would ever actually know about. And shocking of all was that some of these things actually fitted with what the Pharisees say. Some of these things were like, at least I'm not like them. And that sin that I can see, I don't do that. And if I'm going through a tough time, then I might think, why is God blessing them when I know what they're going through? And I'm going through all this mess, and I'm not doing that. And suddenly, I was aware that actually it's so easy for us to become like that. So how can we ensure that we're healthy? Well, we come first, don't we, to this great physician, this doctor of ours, who can come and heal us when we were ill. And he can heal us from our sin. He forgives us our sins. He alone has that authority to forgive our sins if we put our trust in him. And it's, it's great how this doctor-patient relationship goes because when we're sick physically and we go to the doctor, we put our trust and our faith in that doctor to make us well, to give us the right medicine, to say the right things, to tell us what to do. And that's the same with Jesus, isn't it? When we're in sin... We go in faith and trust to Jesus, knowing that he alone can forgive our sins. However, we've seen already that we also know now that we can be ill without even knowing it. We can have sickness within us, but think that everything is all right. So how do these verses help us to see our sickness, even if we can't feel it? How can it help our hearts to be soft so we are totally reliant on all that Jesus has done for us? How can we ensure we treat everybody with the same grace and love and mercy that Jesus has given us? Well, hopefully we'll be able to show that to you. I've got three points this morning that I think will help us in that. First is diagnosis. Could my heart be sick? We will allow Jesus to come and make a diagnosis over us, to help us go past the external holiness that we No, we have to our inner motives and our thoughts. This is what 
Jesus has already been leading up to with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is so challenging to our inner heart and soul, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying, I'm no longer concerned with the external, I'm concerned with the internal. He said, you say, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you look at someone in that way, you're committing adultery. He says, you say, don't commit murder. And you can think, well, I've never committed a murder. That's good. But actually, he says, if you look at someone with rage or anger, you've committed it in your heart. And so Jesus has already been leading up to this with, in the sense that the heart and our heart motives are much more important than what we're doing externally. So we need to allow Jesus to come and give us a diagnosis. Secondly, we need to let him in with the knife, some surgery to make our hearts well. And thirdly, we need to look at how we can prevent this returning, keeping our heart healthy, remembering how this all comes from Jesus. It's he who calls us. It's he who calls us to be his own. And it is in his strength, his power we do this, that we live out in grace, keeping our hearts well. So diagnosis. Could my heart be sick? In verse 12, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And the key here is that we can feel well, can't we? Even list off the number of ways that our hearts are fine, but the Pharisees didn't realize they're they're gravely ill. Their confidence was in their outward appearance. And as I've already said, they started in a good place. They wanted to live holy and blameless for Jesus, for God even. They didn't set out to be harsh and self-righteous, They wanted to please God by following his commands. And they lost that initial purpose in them. They lost that heart. They were unable to see the sins of their heart because they were so focused on the outside and the external. Tim Keller, a Christian author and preacher you may have heard of, said this, it's possible to avoid Jesus as a saviour as much by keeping all biblical rules as by breaking them all. Do you get that? It's possible to avoid Jesus as a saviour by keeping all the biblical rules as much as by breaking them all. That's so powerful, isn't it? We can get so focused on, on keeping God's rules and being holy, but actually we can still miss Jesus, just as those Pharisees did. And I've come to realize for myself that my greatest weakness is to think that I will never be like the Pharisees. You see, that's where I've suddenly become pride. A pride has come up in my heart then. If I think, if I read... The Pharisees in the Bible, I think, I'll never, ever be like that. Then I'm heading for a fall. So I wonder if this morning we could allow Jesus to do some diagnostic work on us, to take a a moment to look at our Christian life and how we live it. Is it full of love and mercy for others? Or is it habitual and ceremonial? Do we just come to church because that's what we've ever done? Do we serve just because that's what we feel we should do? Because Jesus tells us to serve, so we serve. And the danger, I think, is the longer we're a Christian, the more prone we are to depend less on Jesus for our righteousness. It's it's not because we choose to do that, it's just how it happens. You see, when I came to Christ, I was so aware of my sin. I was so aware of my need for Jesus. I was so aware of his need for forgiveness and for him to change me and to start to work in me, his righteousness, so that I can become more like him. I just needed him so much, and I was aware of it. And at that point, I tended to focus on my external sins. Those were the obvious things that needed to get right. 
And it's easier to spot them. When we're, when we're trying to be more like Jesus, it's easy to spot those external things. If you're being discipled by someone, they're going to see your external sins and, and help you with those kind of things. And it was the same back in Jesus' day. It was easy to spot the sinners, the tax collectors, the lepers, those who were long-term sick, the, the cripples, the demon-possessed, the blind. And this process of becoming more like Jesus then becomes harder once we've dealt with all the external sin. Once we have to look at our inner motives and thoughts, we sometimes just stop there, don't we? I, I, you know, like the Pharisees, I was good at working on what everyone can see, but actually I can become so complacent about what everybody can't see. My inner motives. I was suddenly aware that we that when we no longer feel the need for, the, for a saviour or a doctor, because we feel like we've, we've done it all, we've got everything sorted, that's when I know for me I'm in grave danger. Why? Because then I've lost sight of my original position before God. I'm now relying on my own good works to keep me in right standing with God. And this subtle kind of change of heart inside of us, something that maybe no one would know, even in this example of the Pharisees, they didn't even know, can bring up some heart issues in us. One is that it can give us hard hearts. The Pharisees had hard hearts. They were cynical about anything new. They were cynical about the works of Jesus. They would be cynical. And for us, we could be cynical about church, about where the the church is heading or something that's happening in it, constantly questioning if anything is new. It gave them harsh hearts. I know for me, this is a weak area that I have to constantly battle at, where I see the external issues and sins in someone, and I want to try and fix it and stop it. And I've missed myself. You know, when I was in sixth form, and I'd just come back to God just before I went into sixth form and uh, radically encountered Jesus and was passionate for him. And uh, I had a friend in sixth form who was in the Christian Union, and he loved Madonna. He was a massive Madonna fan. This was back in the early 90s. And he was a massive Madonna fan. And he brought in this music magazine with this huge you know, six-page interview with Madonna on it. And we were looking through it and stuff. And it was full of just foul language, sexual language, fantasy shit. I mean, it was just disgusting all the way through it. And I was just like shocked that he would as a Christian, be reading this and be just like, ah, oh, Madonna's so amazing, look at this interview and everything. And what I should have done is maybe spoken to him on his own and like said, I'm, I'm just not sure this is right, you know, this doesn't fit well with me. But actually what I did do was that I rebuked him in front of not only his friends and friends who were Christians, but in front of non-Christians as well. So I'm in the sixth form common room saying, how can you read that as a, a Christian? That's just disgusting. <laughs> But I'm doing it in front of everybody. That's not a, a graceful, merciful heart, I'm ashamed to say. That's a harsh heart. And my motive initially was right, but it came out in the wrong way. And I was trusting in my own goodness, and therefore I was thinking, why can't he be good, just like me? And it can give us bitter hearts, where we get frustrated with God because he's blessing people who we don't think deserve it. And again, this is so hard. This is 
me again. I have to work hard on this because as a leader, I could see people who God was blessing and then I'm like, but I'm seeing them in the week and I know what they're going through. And it's like, how, how is God blessing them when there's that? And then I'm going through this tough time and I don't seem to be seeing the blessing of God. And I've lost sight of what Jesus has done for me. So what do we do? Well, we need to allow Jesus to come in and make our hearts well, to give us some surgery on us. In verse 13, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And this is Jesus quoting from Hosea 6, verse 6, where God, through the prophet, says, I desire steadfast love, it says in Hosea, but steadfast love and mercy and not sacrifice. So the key here is, I believe that mercy comes through a steadfast love for Jesus. When we've got a steadfast love for Jesus, our our hearts are changed. They're softened. And when we look at the Pharisees, they couldn't be further from this. They were merciless, not full of mercy. They were merciless in their condemnation of everyone around them. Anybody who didn't follow their strict version of Judaism, and that meant ostracizing people, tax collectors, lepers, anybody who was visible, visibly sinning, that they didn't want anything to do with them. They... Then, the opposite, where Jesus says he desires mercy and not sacrifice, they were merciless, but then they were full of their own sacrifice, weren't they? They highly valued self-sacrifice that they were bringing up. And the point Jesus was making is not that sacrifice is wrong, but that ritualistic or habitual or good works done to gain credit with God, which is what the Pharisees were doing. That's where we miss it. Because they were at the height of sacrifice. They would tithe everything, even down to their herbs and spices. It would take off a tenth. They constantly went out of their way to be keeping God's law. It was a cost to them. It was a costly way to live. But they'd still missed it. Their motivation wasn't mercy or steadfast love for God. And this is the tough bit because we have to allow Jesus, our doctor here, to come and do some open-heart surgery on us where we look at our real motives for doing our service for God And our inner thoughts about other people when we see them in sin. This is where I'm asking myself, could there be some hidden sickness in me? If there is, help me to see it, Lord. Help me see it, Lord. In this verse from Hosea that Jesus quotes, he gives us two things to look for. An inward heart change to steadfast love. An inward heart change that softens our heart with mercy that then is an outward change, a fuel for outward change in service and sacrifice. So if we're looking for an inward heart change, and I don't know about you, but nothing changes my heart more than when I'm aware of my own sinful state when I came to Christ. Just being aware of that, reminding myself of it, how much I was in need of his grace and mercy, how much I needed his forgiveness and acceptance, I'm suddenly aware of how much I've been given then and how much that cost him to give it to me. And Jesus explains this and shows this in a parable later in Matthew. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. And he says, Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy 
on you. When Facebook first came out, you all know about Facebook, don't you? And loads of people go on there, and there's pictures and everything. My mum came onto Facebook this year, which has been interesting, and she's uh, finding out a lot about me. And when, I, when we were leading the student work in Portsmouth, Facebook started, and suddenly the students were on there, and I was suddenly seeing pictures of things they were doing in the week that I was not aware of beforehand. And, uh, and this became difficult for me because I was then seeing them in church on Sundays, and they'd come to the front, and they wanted to give a prophecy, and they were like, come on, let's pray for people to be healed, and, and they're doing all these things for God, and yet, at the same time, I was seeing them, like, out getting drunk, or, or, or other things, and I was kind of like, how, how do I work this? I wanted to stop them doing it, but what I realized was that, actually, in my heart, I was now resting on my own, own works there, because, you see, If I'm really honest, I stand here, even today, only in the righteousness of God. I have no self-righteousness reason to be here other than the righteousness of God. And so, whatever someone's done during the week, if God wants to use them and they've got a passion to do that, and they're working through all that they're going through, then that who am I to stand in their way? Yes, I may be better than them at hiding my sins. You see... I didn't post all my inner thoughts on Facebook. Whilst they're, you know, at parties and stuff like that, and people are taking pictures, and, and they're all going up and there. So their sins were really visible. But actually, it's not that I'm perfect now. I would stand up there as their leader, not perfect, but only in the righteousness of God. Jesus wants us to accept people as they are, to accept them as they are, just like he does. Yes, to help them change. Yes, to help them move on but not to put conditions on how we will love them. Jesus highlights this again in in a not very subtle parable, he says in Luke 18. Uh, This is a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And this is what he says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is so powerful a story for us because we can detach ourselves from the Pharisees as we read all the way through the Gospels so much that we don't even realize that Jesus is talking to us. He's saying to us that we need to come back to a place where we know God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And this leads to a heart change, I believe, an outward heart change. We've had an inward heart change. When we're aware of our position that we are just sinners in need of a merciful God, then this gives us an outward heart change. 
Because Jesus isn't after a dry level of service where we do things because it says it in his word. Because that's what we're meant to do as Christians. He's looking for people who are so caught up in him. And aware that we're only strong in him. That serving comes out of joy. And that although it looks like a sacrifice to other people, but for us it's worth every bit, isn't it? It's worth every bit. I think Matthew brings this in later in his gospel in such a profound way when he talks about the parables of hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. He does them together. And this is where the kingdom of God is described as like treasure hidden in a field which a man stumbles across. And it says, in joy, with great joy, he goes and sells everything to buy this field so that he can have it. And the same with the pearl of great price. This man suddenly finds this amazing pearl which you get the impression that no one else has noticed. It's not noticed. And he sees the value in this. He sees it so greatly. And with joy, he goes and sells everything so he can buy this and have it. And what's key here is that, yes, it's costly, isn't it? They sell everything to get this. There is a cost involved in walking with Jesus. But it's done with great joy. It's done with great joy. When we understand what we really offer is actually worth nothing to Jesus. But actually what he's offered to us, it brings about a joy in us. And this is even what was read out this morning. It puts his law in our hearts, doesn't it? So suddenly now it's in our hearts. We want to do things for Jesus. We want to do it with joy. When we get this, we're able to serve in church with amazing joy, without grumbling or complaining. For me, this is really difficult, you see. So I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so particularly when it comes to church, and particularly when it comes to the layout of a church. So I'm the kind of person who, on a Monday morning, I would be there on my computer, emailing the church administrator, or if I felt really indignant, the elders. I think you would find that on Sunday, that the... uh, Chairs were 0.35 centimetres out from their usual position this week. I was wondering if we could find time to call the chair committee so that we can discuss how this never happens again. (laughs) I used to uh, be in charge of the setup in Portsmouth, and I was very, very kind of regimented about it, much to the dismay of those who were volunteering. But I think we can... Do you see what I'm saying? We can end up where we're like going through serving in church and it becomes more of a a grumble and a bind to us than actually a joy. I think what's striking is if you search through the Gospels on the word grumble, guess who comes up most against that word? Pharisees. Pharisees. They're the ones who are grumbling. They grumble about Jesus and what he's doing. Grumbling about the people following him. Grumbling about his signs and wonders. So for me, serving in joy without grumbling is is so important. But it can only come as an outward change from what Jesus has done inwardly in us. So once we are aware of our own need for Jesus, out of that can flow a joy to serve him, to do what he wants. So finally, then, we can look at prevention. Prevention. Keeping my heart healthy. 
Jesus finishes verse 13 saying, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus isn't saying that there are some people who are righteous in their own right, so he doesn't need to come for them. He's being ironic here about the Pharisees. He's saying that people who think they're all right have lost their need for him. And probably the greatest way to secure ourselves in the righteousness of Christ and not in what we do is to constantly remember that it's Jesus who called us first. It's Jesus who came to call the sinners, he says in this verse. When we were stuck, as even we heard again this morning, in that pit, in that miry clay, he came and called us. And that's our security. It rests not in our outward good works, but in the certainty of what God's word says to us, that he chose me, he chose you, before the foundations of the world, to become like him. Whenever I make much of what I've done for God, or whenever I think I've cracked that sin, that's never going to be a problem now, or that habit, I've done that, I've nailed it, I'm now praying that I will once again put that down. I'll put them thoughts down that no one sees, but I'm thinking myself, those inner things, and realize that actually all I'm offering Jesus are filthy rags, really, compared to his righteousness that I now have. And why would I want those rags when I can have his robes of righteousness? It's that alone that will keep my heart humble in my walk with Jesus. It's that alone that will keep me from looking at others and judging them in that way. I want to finish there. I wonder, is, is there time to sing a song to finish? Is there? Yeah? Can we sing, sing a song? I just... I wonder if we could just take a moment to let Jesus, the doctor, to look into our hearts. I wonder if we could sing that song we sang earlier, I Stand Amazed in the Presence of Jesus and Nazarene. I think that's really relevant. Just allow Jesus to come, the, this doctor, to come and speak to our hearts, to help us to see where we might feel well, but actually there is something that Jesus just wants to pinpoint, that word we spoke to someone last week, that unforgiveness maybe we've had for years, that sense that we feel that we've made it now, but actually we need to come back to the cross and to Jesus and realise what he's done for us. I wonder if we could stand. I just want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for myself, Lord, that I would never ever become so complacent to think I've made it and done it, that I'm now able to stand before you thinking that what I do is now good enough. Lord, we want to come before you and say, Lord, your your death and resurrection, your righteousness is enough for us. Let nothing else come in the way. Lord, I pray that you would help my heart to be soft Lord, to allow you to come in and to open up anything that's not of you, any hidden motives or harsh words and thoughts that we may have. Lord, I pray that you would take them from me. Lord, give me a soft heart that loves you, aware of the grace that you poured on me, aware of your mercy you poured on me, that I may now bring that grace and mercy to others. 
Lord, that I would treat people as you've treated me. That I stand here with no, no privilege other than your grace. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, do that surgery on us this morning. Lord, that we may live for you with joy. Lord, even at great cost, may it cost us everything, Lord Jesus, but we would do it with joy for you. I serve you so faithfully, Lord Jesus, aware of the cost that is, it costs you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we want to echo Paul's words in Philippians 3, where he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That is where we stand this morning. Thank you, Lord. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous! How wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He took my sins and my sorrows he made them his very own he bore the burden to calvary and suffered and died alone how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love for me when with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. Till be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous! How wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful. 
marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Jesus, thank you for speaking to us through your word this morning. Lord Jesus, we just ask, may this joy continue. As David said, Psalm 51 was it, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Then I will tell transgressors of your ways. If we really want to see the kingdom advance, as much as he is sovereign, he wants us to be co-laborers in that. If we want to be a part of that on the front line, it starts in our hearts, doesn't it? Lord, restore to us the joy of our salvation and let everything else fall into place around that. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to continue to do so. Let our hearts not run dry. Open our eyes to what needs to change, what we need to do by your Holy Spirit. Restore that joy first and foremost, Lord. We love you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.